0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you, and it's uh, good to be back back here in the, in the pulpit again this morning. My name's Brian, if we've not met, and I uh, hope, hope we'll get a chance to do that. I'm, I'm uh, privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at Foothills, so thanks so much for being out here with us this morning. Last week, Brian Katherman uh, preached for us. He's a p- church planter and a pastor in Salt Lake City, and we had a great weekend together, our Quip conference, our Quip weekend, and so... Today, we're back in the study of Acts, and so I'm going to invite you to open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 13 and 14. It's on page 921, if you're using the Bible there in the pew back, Uh, 921. These two chapters tell one story. Uh, They are the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas take, and they tell us the story that missions is the work of the Spirit. Missions is the work of the Spirit. You know, when you introduce yourself to somebody in a social setting, uh, usually you, you walk up and say, hey, my name's Brian, and, and you tell them either something about where you're from or what you do. It's so common. We just do it by reflex almost. Hey, my name's Brian, and I'm a pastor. What's your name, you know? Uh, that's those kinds of things. The Bible here is telling us that there's a work that's going on in the world, and that God's doing it, and His Spirit is doing it. And he wants us to be part of it. And that's what we see in these two chapters. I, I want you to notice in the first couple of verses there in chapter 13, you, you see it. It's like the first set of parentheses. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit speaks to the church in verse 2 and he says, I want you to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The work to which I've called them. And you can close the parentheses when you turn the page to chapter 14. Because when you get to verse 26, you're at the end of a journey that probably took at least a year, maybe a little longer than that. And in verse 26, it says, From there they sailed to Antioch. They're on their way home to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Close parentheses. Everything between that verse and chapter 13, verse 1, goes together. It's a work. Missions. Missions is the work of the Spirit. And I said that we would answer some, some questions out of these two chapters. Well, what is that work exactly? How do they do it? And why is it necessary? And so we talked a little bit about a couple of those questions, the first two, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I want to kind of refresh us. right? When you think about missions, what do you think of? Across the board in Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, missions, the definition of it has become wider and wider. For many people, missions is any kind of work that a church does beyond its community to improve the lives of people that live in other places. And so it could be water projects, it could be, it could be clinics, it could be hospitals, it might be training and equipping people in business, it might be giving microloans for businesses. It might have something to do with ending human trafficking or disaster relief. All of these things fall under the banner of missions. But when you look at these two chapters, 13 and 14, the clear work of missions is to proclaim the gospel. That's the clear work of missions. All of those other things are good, and all of those other things flow out of a Christian ethic that Jesus taught us, to love your neighbor and to value human life. They're good things that show the love of God for humanity, that step into places where there are deep human needs and seek to make a difference. And we ought to do those things, and we are able to do those things by God's grace as a church. But the gospel is different. It's, it's news. And news has to be told. It has to be shared. You can show it, and you can demonstrate that the news has had an effect on your life, and it's changed the way you think and the way you behave and the way you live. But news is something that inherently must be proclaimed. It has to be declared. And it must be heard and believed in order for there to be a life change happen. So Paul and Barnabas... They cross oceans and they trek for hundreds of miles to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to do that work of, of missions. And, and they speak to Hebrew-speaking people and Greek-speaking people and people who speak other languages, getting the gospel out to people who've never heard it before. And how did they do that work? Well, I said two weeks ago that they persevered, right? That they persevered by the Spirit, it was the Spirit that called them to the work, that enabled them to do that work. It was the Spirit that, that led them from one place to another. As you follow these two chapters, they go from one city to another. It's the Spirit leading them. It's the Spirit that opens the hearts of people who hear the gospel to believe it. It's a work of the Spirit. They persevered by the Spirit. They didn't do the work in their own strength any more than you and I could do it in our own strength. We've got so many gadgets nowadays and so many tools nowadays compared to them. They had the Old Testament. They had the Spirit of God. They had Jesus who had been with them and commissioned them. They had those kinds of things. We've got apps and maps and all kinds of things. you know. They, but we don't do this in our own strength. It's a spiritual work. Only God can do it, and yet God has determined He wants to do it through us. He wants to do it in us. And so we're part of that. So we have to persevere by the Spirit. And here's where we pick up from where we left off two weeks ago. They also persevered in trouble and when you read through these two chapters, you see, I think, at least six spots where these men persevered in difficulty and in trouble. If you take the whole scope of it from start to finish, it's pretty plain that they, they faced a lot of physical issues, a lot of physical difficulties and problems. I mean, they, they crossed the sea not once but twice. And it wasn't the same as a carnival cruise, right? It was a different kind of ship altogether. And, and it wasn't quite as nice, you know. And then they trek for hundreds of miles and they go through mountains and it was difficult travel. It wasn't convenient and so comfortable it is is for us today. So they face those issues. Get into chapter 13 and verses 6 through 11 in that section. We read that two weeks ago. But you remember the scene. There was a man named Sergius Paulus. He was a Roman proconsul. He was a man of importance. He was a man of weight in that region, in that area, in Cyprus. And he had a man who attended to him, a servant, a guy named Bar-Jesus. And every time Paul and Barnabas tried to share the good news of Christ with this Roman, this Bar-Jesus would butt in, and he would interrupt, and he would interfere, and he would contradict what they were saying. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to try to share the gospel with someone and have somebody constantly interfering with the conversation? Maybe you don't have to imagine that. Maybe it's happened to you. You've experienced it. I can imagine they would want to give up and quit, but they persevered, and eventually Sergius Paulus came to believe. You get to the end of chapter 13, and you see all of these Jews who are up in arms, they're jealous because of what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching the Gentiles who have been coming to their synagogues, telling them that they can be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. They're zealous, really, and that's actually, when you read your Bible there and it says they were jealous, it's the word zeal. That's how we would translate it perhaps into English. Have you ever been zealous about anything? I mean, football season is nearly over. Anybody yelled at the TV lately about a bad call? All of my Ohio State fans, friends, have yelled at the TV, you know, about bad calls and, and that, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, we've done that, right? It's, it's zeal, you know, that kind of overcomes us. Maybe you've posted something on Facebook out of zeal uh that's zeal zeal isn't bad in and of itself it's good to be zealous at times these people were zealous because they believed that these gentiles had to become jews first before they could become christians it was good for you to believe on jesus yes but not without first becoming jewish And so they were really upset with Paul and Barnabas and with their whole message, and they conspire, and they stir up a whole other crowd of people who persecute these two guys and basically run them out of town. That's what you see at the end of chapter 13. And it looks like a defeat. But but this is interesting. It's interesting given what Mario just said as well. In verse 51 of chapter 13, it says, they shook the dust from their feet against them. That's Paul and Barnabas. Okay, we're done with you. We've done what we've been called to do and we're, gonna, we're finished, we're gonna move on. And they went to Iconium. They traveled another 100 miles down the road. But verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So these two guys have been there for a time preaching the gospel, people have come to believe. They face persecution, they are being driven out. But the people that they leave behind who are new believers are filled with joy and they're rejoicing, they're filled with the Spirit. And there seems to be a tension, at least in my head, about that whole scene, because I'm like, okay, these are the people that just told you good news, and they're being driven away, but you've got joy. That's how deep the change has become for them, how much they have come to know Jesus, and how much they're depending on him. And what looks like defeat really is just another identification of persevering in trouble, because look at chapter 14, verse one. Now at Iconium, a hundred miles later, several days later, I'm sure, They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. (laughs) So they're driven out of one town. What do they do? They just repeat the process. They do exactly there what they just did in Antioch, perhaps weeks or months before that. And it says a great number of people, Jews and Greeks, believe. Verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remain for a long time, speaking boldly. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, they face one instance of trouble after another, after another, and they are unrelenting about taking the gospel to people who need to hear it. They just won't give up. And so here they are, now facing trouble again, even after many people have believed, and people are against them. So they speak boldly, God does amazing things to them, Right, It says they speak boldly and they bore witness to the word. God did this to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. That's typical. Some people sided with the Jews. We don't believe these guys. Some people with the apostles. We believe what they have to say. Then an attempt is made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, to stone them. They learn of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and the surrounding country. And there they continue to preach the gospel. It's amazing to me. These guys are pushed out of one place after another, it would seem, and yet, they never stop proclaiming the gospel. They just stay at it, even in the midst of trouble. And then look at chapter 14 at the end, nearly the end, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Now, do we have the map up? Let's put the map up there and get ourselves oriented one, two, three, map. There it is. I'm not as fast as I used to be. It kinda, it's kind of, a fade-in thing. So, so here, this is where they're at, right? You see where they're at at the top of the map there. They've, they've been to Antioch. They traveled down to Iconium. That's about 100 miles, give or take. Now they've gone to this place called Lystra. Lystra, there's no synagogue there. There's very few, if any, Jews in that city. These are mostly Lyconian speakers. I don't know what that language was or is, uh, They had trouble communicating. They got the gospel across to these people. But Jews have come from Antioch and Iconium down to Lystra, and there's about 20 miles between Iconium and Lystra, 100 miles between Antioch and Iconium. Some of these people are so bent about what Paul and Barnabas are sharing that they go 120 miles out of their way to shut them up. Some of them are so stirred up that they go 20 miles out of their way to make them get quiet. And they get to the place where they stir up the poor people there in Lystra who were not Jewish background at all. They stir up these people against them, so much so that they stone Paul nearly to death. So some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, verse 19, and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. How knocked out, bloodied and beaten do you have to be that people drag you out of the city and figure that you're just dead he must have been in bad shape and yet look what happens, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, we don't have any sense of time on this, right But they get around it. he rose up and he entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe that's perseverance and trouble. That's, that's the epitome of it right there, right? That's the picture of it. Th- these guys lay aside convenience and comfort in order to get the gospel to people who have never heard it. What is it that gets in our way of taking the gospel to people who've not heard it, of taking the gospel to a coworker or to a neighbor or to a friend or family? What is it? What convenience is so high on your valued list that you won't give it up, that you won't adjust your schedule, that you won't reorient your calendar in order that someone might know the good news about Jesus? What is it that's so comforting about your life that you won't lay that aside and face some awkwardness, maybe even a little antagonism, in order to share the good news of Jesus with someone? These guys persevered in trouble. They laid aside all of that. They were tested physically, emotionally, spiritually. They've been hounded, they've been harassed, they've been contradicted, they've been talked about. Their reputations, I'm sure, have been maligned. We think that those kinds of things only go on in the Twitterverse. They were going on a long time before that ever came along. They were fierce about this. They incited other people against them, and then they nearly stoned one of these guys to death. And think about the fact that on the next day, he goes right back into the city that night, spends the night in the city where he was just stoned to death nearly. Then he wakes up the next morning, and they start a 60-mile trek to the next city on the list, to Derby, 60 miles the next morning. Now, they thought he was dead, so he was beaten pretty badly, but he begins to walk, perseverance in trouble. And then look at verses 21 to 23 here in chapter 14, because now you see them persevering for the sake of the church, persevering for the church. I I love what it says here. He and Barnabas go on to Derby, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And what did they do? They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas are carrying out the commission that Jesus gave his disciples to make disciples, to see that people hear the gospel, they become converts, to baptize them, to make disciples of them, to teach them, to obey everything. They're they're obeying the commission of Jesus. And instead of taking the short way home, they're in Derby. So instead of going through Cilicia back to Antioch, that would have been the fastest way. If they'd had Google Maps, that's what would have shown up. They don't do that, they go the opposite direction. They go right back into the teeth of trouble. They've been kicked out of how many of these places? Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, all three of those places. They were driven out. Now they're going right back for the sake of the church. They persevere. They strengthened the souls of the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. They warned them that trouble will come because they have believed. They appointed elders for them in each one of those churches and they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You can, you can kind of picture what it must have been like for them as they walked through this process one place after another. Maybe it had been weeks or months, perhaps even as much as a year since the last time you had laid eyes on Paul and Barnabas. The last time you'd seen them in your home or in your town on the street or in a friend's home. But now here they are, and you and a group of other new believers are gathered together in a home, and they're back. Paul doesn't look the way he looked the last time he saw him. He looks a lot worse for the wear. He's been stoned nearly to death. And you're leaning in and you're listening as they assure you of God's love for you, of the Spirit's presence within you now that you've believed. And they assure you that your sins have been forgiven because you've been saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. That you have been set free from the power of sin over your life. That you've been given a right standing before God. They they just drive the stake in deeper and deeper to cement for you that vertical relationship that now you have with God. You've been reconciled to him. He's your heavenly father. And then they work on that horizontal plane, I'm sure. They, they, they look around to one another and they say, you're brothers and sisters in Christ now. This is a relationship that goes even deeper than blood relatives. You've been brought together through the blood of Christ. You belong together. You're brothers and sisters together. You're members of God's household together. There's a new thing here, guys. It's called the church. And you're part of it and God is doing this. And so love one another. And encourage one another. And sometimes you need to admonish one another. And serve one another. And pray for one another. You're the church. He tells them to hold fast to what they have been taught. The faith. Jude says that we should remember to hold fast to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. This body of teaching. You see that as you read through the rest of the New Testament. You see Paul's letters to the churches the church of Galatia, where we're at right now on the map, Paul's first letter to the, to the church, he writes back to them. He reminds them that the marks that he bore in his body from the persecution were like the marks of Jesus because he was on mission with Christ in the world. So he writes to them a body of truth. They have the Old Testament He reminds them to hold fast to the scriptures, to be faithful to the one who was faithful to them all the way to death and who rose from the dead to give them life. Be faithful to Jesus because it's going to be hard. Following Christ is going to be tough. Expect trouble. And then he goes on from there. Paul and Barnabas, they appointed elders for them in every church, in every church singular. Multiple elders, pastors, if you will. I, I love the, the, the twofer here, right? Because you, you see Paul and Barnabas giving them the scriptures. Hold fast to the faith, to the word. And then he gives them shepherds to help them and to teach them and to lead them. And they have the spirit within them. So there's the scriptures and the shepherds and the spirit within them. The church. And he committed them. They committed them to the Lord. The one who saved them. The one who would help them. As missionaries, you can't stay in one place. You, you move on from one place to another. Paul talked about the different offices, uh, the different callings, if you will, of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And Some of those come in at a time and they break new ground like Paul and Barnabas and they, they see the church planted and they help to make disciples, but soon that apostolic ministry, that evangelistic ministry is over for them. They move on to another place, but they put in place leaders, shepherds, who will help that church to grow and continue to make disciples and continue to evangelize the community around them. And that's what you see. Imagine that scene being repeated in Derby, and Lystra, in Iconium, and Antioch, the friendships that had been formed between Paul and Barnabas and all of those people who'd never heard the good news of Jesus before these guys rolled in, who didn't know anything about the God in heaven who could reconcile them to himself and save them. But these men have brought that news and now they've helped them and they've strengthened them and they've encouraged them and they've taught them. But now they're on their way. But they're not leaving you alone. Of course the Spirit's present with you. Of course you have the Scriptures. Now you have shepherds around you and they commit you to the Lord and they pray. It had to be difficult to leave each one of those places and to move on and go back and persevere for the sake of the church in that next place. But they did it. Roland Allen uh, has written several books on missiology through through the years. He was a missionary for the Anglican church back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he he made a lot of really strong arguments about how evangelicals were doing missions, and he said we would go into a place and we would set up a mission, like a preaching point, and we would expect everyone to come to us and and do it that way, and and they were very slow to, to plant churches because there were certain things that they had to go through in order to have a church, but he argued it shouldn't be that way. And this is what he wrote in one of his books. It was called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's are Ours. And he wrote these words, nothing can alter or disguise the fact that Paul left behind him at his first visit complete churches. It's really amazing when you think about it. Now, the Jews in those places where there were synagogues, right, they've been teaching the Old Testament for a long time. They were rooted in all of that history and in the story of what God had done from the very beginning of creation until the coming of Christ. They're filling in now the backstory of how God has kept all of his promises in Jesus. And so it makes sense that many of those Jews, at least in my feeble brain, it makes sense that many of those Jews have now come to faith in Christ because now they're getting, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. It's all coming together and the Spirit's putting it together for them. And it, it's not surprising, right, that many of those Gentiles, those Greek speakers, who have been hanging out in the back of those synagogues, listening to these stories and these scriptures, are also having it put together for them by the Spirit. And so in some ways, it's, it's really cool because God's people were there, and they weren't necessarily super proactive about reaching out to those Greeks, but they welcomed them, and they were hearing part of the story, and now they're hearing it all, and they're coming to faith. I love that fact that that's, that's working in that part of the world, and you see it, we see it there. Uh, Alan summed up Paul's missionary work by saying this. He said in a little more than 10 years, Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire, Galatia, that's where we're at on the map now, then further east in Macedonia and Achaia and Asia. Before AD 47, there were no churches in these provinces. So you think about a place where there had never been a church before. The gospel had never been there before. Nobody there had ever heard really of Jesus. In AD 47, there were no churches there. By AD 57, Paul could speak as if his work there was done in 10 years. It's amazing. It doesn't mean every person in those areas had heard the gospel. It doesn't mean that at all. But there were churches there who were now evangelizing, whole groups of people, whole language groups. I love it. They did the work. They persevered in it by the Spirit in trouble for the sake of the church. And why was it all necessary? Why was it necessary? Let's just go ahead and read the end of the 14th chapter, right? Let's press on. It says they're going home. They've committed to those people. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. You go to seminary to learn to pronounce words like that, right? And then when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there, they sailed to Antioch, right? So you, you see it on the map there a little bit. They, they come from Antioch. They're going back south. They go to Perga. And they stop there and they declare the word there. For whatever reason, they didn't do that on the way in. They, they landed and they went straight to Antioch. Most people think they did that because Sergius Paulus, that Roman consul, he, he, he had people that he knew and he gave them kind of a, an inn in Antioch. So they went right there. But either way, they they speak the word there in Perga, they go down to Italia, to the coast, they get on another ship, and they sail home to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled, close parentheses. And now we have this summation. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, have you ever been to a church where they had like a missionary report, you know? in the olden days they used to have a slide projector and one at a time you'd advance the slide and occasionally one would get be upside down and one would get caught in the mechanism and yeah when they arrived they gathered at the church and they declared look at this you could underline they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and there remained no little time with the disciples and, and you could understand why right I mean they, they had to be tired worn out Paul probably needed some medical attention. They stuck around for a bit. No need to rush back out just just yet. But I love what it says about what God had done. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Why is it necessary to do this kind of work even today? Even today. I, I told you a couple of weeks ago that I've had people ask that question over the years. You know, why do you do missions? Why do you do evangelism? Why do you go to people who seem to be very happy with what they believe? They're satisfied with their life, and what they believe or what they choose not to believe? Why would you disrupt their lives by sharing the gospel with them? Why would you interfere with their family life, with the community, by bringing Jesus in there? And that's a perceptive question, right? It might be a provocative question. It's an honest question, I think, for sure. But we do it because it's necessary. It's necessary because it's about the work of God. This is God's work. Missions is the work of the Spirit in the world. And they talk about that God did this with us. God did this with us. The emphasis is on what God did with them. Missions and sharing the gospel, even right here in Awatuki in Phoenix, is about what God wants to do with us. That's, that's how we ought to look at it. We're, it's, a, it's a partnership. And we don't contribute a lot to the effort. This is God's work. But he does call us to obedience. He does call us to go and to speak the gospel. But God's the one who's opening the door of faith to people. I love how they worded this here, the way Luke worded it, by the Spirit. They return to the church, they give them this report, and we see that it's necessary because this is the work that God's doing in the world. If you wanted to drill in a little bit more, I, w- I would say this, I would add to that, maybe in, in just more specific kinds of ways, that eternal life is at stake for everyone. It's necessary for that purpose. Eternal life is at stake for every person. If you go back to chapter 13, and I know that preaching out of two chapters and asking three questions like this causes you to go back and forth in your Bible. And I'm trying to go slow, I hope that you stay with it, but. In chapter 13, in verses 38 through 39, and then later in that chapter, 46 through 49, you see that it's necessary for people to hear the gospel in order to come to faith in Christ. That if forgiveness of sins and freedom from the power of sin and the gift of righteousness is going to come into our lives if we're going to experience that, then we need to hear and believe the gospel. It's clear in all of those spots, in both of those places there. Hearing and believing the gospel is the only way to eternal life. There is no plan B. And that's a point of tension. I read an article last night about Aaron Rodgers. You know, Aaron, I always get in trouble when I make football applications and things like that because not everybody's keen about it. But Aaron Rodgers, right? The the, uh, starting quarterback for the, what's the name of that team? Oh, yeah, the Packers. (laughs) So... Aaron was a guy who grew up in church, a non-denominational church in California. He had faith and all that. He's not so sure anymore, and he's kind of been maybe a little, I would say he's been derailed quite a bit, that kind of thing, but one of the, one of the issues was the answer to this question. It's difficult. He's trying to wrestle with this idea in his mind. What about people who've not heard? What about people at the ends of the earth where the gospel hasn't been? Up until AD 47, the gospel hadn't gone to those places. Paul and Barnabas brought it there for the first time. People believed within 10 years, churches were springing up. God was doing a it work. It's a difficult, it's not an easy answer. And there's certainly not an answer that's gonna make you feel warm and fuzzy or necessarily all comfortable in a moment. All I know is what I can teach you from the Bible, what the Bible says. And the Bible seems to be very clear to me that apart from hearing and believing the gospel, a person cannot be saved. And God is anxious for people to hear and believe the gospel. He is anxious to save people. He longs to reconcile people to himself. But he has commissioned us to go. And so if there is a problem with this equation, it is not on his side. It is on mine and yours. We ought to be gripped with an urgency that people would hear the gospel. Our neighbors all the way out to the nations. And so we go for that reason. Even if people seem to be happy and satisfied. The article about Aaron Rodgers was very interesting because it, it talked about his perspective of what was happening in his life when he boarded the bus to go back to the hotel after winning the Super Bowl. And all he could think was, there has to be more to life than this. This is a guy who's done nothing but play football for many years of his life, trained like crazy and risen to the pinnacle got the trophy in his hands and it just doesn't feel very full it doesn't feel very fulfilling there's gotta be more and there is more it's being reconciled to the God who made us knowing him and living life by faith through him through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus trusting in that it's a necessary work that we do because eternal life is at stake for every person But it's also necessary, I think, and I I push it in a little bit more because it's really part and parcel of our new identity as followers of Jesus in the world. It's all about who we have become now, that we are followers of Christ. I I get that when I read a little deeper here in those uh, later verses in that same chapter, chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas have been speaking the gospel in the synagogues. Jews and Gentiles have been coming to faith. And then Paul, in in the midst of facing this opposition, look at at what he says in verse 47. For so the Lord commanded us, saying. Now, uh, let me back back up to verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, because these people are really getting after them. They speak out boldly, and they say this. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's talking to the Jews. It was necessary that that happened. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles and that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, well, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is really a key passage here. It's all about our identity as followers of Christ. And Paul and Barnabas are making the argument that that they're doing this work in fulfillment of God's call on the lives of his people. God called his people to be his servant, Israel. So he's quoting from Isaiah. And Isaiah talks about Israel, the nation, being the servant of God in the world, being a light to the Gentiles. But they hadn't done very good at that. They hadn't done well at that. And then uh, Jesus is declared to be really God's servant. You see that in Luke chapter 2. Luke wrote Acts, and in his gospel, eight days after Jesus is born, his mother and father bring him into the temple to be dedicated, and there's an old man there named Simeon, and he holds Jesus, or he at least looks at Jesus, and he blesses Jesus, and he says his eyes have seen salvation, the salvation that God has promised, the one who will be a light to the Gentiles or for the Gentiles. Jesus is the servant of God. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus fulfilled and did what the people of God never could do because of their sin. But Jesus accomplishes it. So how, if Jesus is the true servant of God, can Paul refer to he and Barnabas as if they're God's servants, as if they're now a light for the Gentiles? Because they're owning it. They're owning the mission of Jesus because they are Jesus' people. They've been born again. They've been reconciled to God. They've become part of the people of God. And as the people of God in the world, we're light to the Gentiles, to the nations, to people without the gospel. We are not Paul and Barnabas. They existed in time, in history. They fulfilled a specific purpose. But the application for you and me is this. Nothing has changed since Jesus spoke the Beatitudes. Nothing's changed since Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28 or in Acts 1-8. By His Spirit, we are called to be salt and light in the world. And so in the same sense in which these men speak, hey, we're, we're called to be a light for the Gentiles. We're called to be a light and salt to people all around us who need the gospel. So this work is necessary because eternal life is at stake for people. They need to hear the gospel. And because it's really part and parcel of who you are as a believer in Jesus, to be salt and light in the world, to get the gospel to people, who need Christ and if I'm not involved in that work well then I'm missing a big part of why God has saved me and redeemed me and reconciled me to himself it's why I exist in the world today and of course we know not everybody responds to the gospel the same way we see that in this text right Paul said "You, you guys you Jews are thrusting this message aside you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life you're rejecting it you're responsible for that but on the same At the same time, it looks as if God has appointed some to eternal life because they believe. The the word appointed them, it, it really means he enrolled them. It's as if there's this book of life and God's written their names in it. And we know that he's written their names down because they've come to faith. This is another example, and there are many in Acts, of God's sovereignty at work in the salvation of sinners. It's really an amazing thing. That God graciously and mercifully reaches down and saves sinners who perpetually only and always want their own way rather than the maker's way, rather than God's way. And yet, he comes and he intervenes and he reconciles us to himself. He's responsible for that. He's sovereign over all of that. How do we deal with the tension between the sovereignty of God and salvation and human responsibility? Should we stay in our study and tweak all the words and parse all the verbs and open up a lot of books and see if we can't get down to the really the nitty-gritty of the whole thing and really understand it? Sure, do all of that work. But whatever you do, remember that God is at work in the world to save sinners, and he means to do it with us the same way that he did it with them. All that God had done with them and how he opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. God is still in the business of opening the door of faith to people. And regardless of where you might come down on this issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation, we ought to be about getting the good news to people who need to hear it because that's how God saves people, by grace through faith, when they hear the gospel. How do we apply all of this today to to our lives, let me just ask you three questions. How is God speaking to you today about persevering? Is there a way in which you need to persevere in your life by the spirit? Are you facing trouble for your witness of the gospel? Is there a way in which you need to persevere for the sake of the church? Is he speaking to you about persevering? Do you value personal comfort and convenience more than sacrificial service? That's another question. These men laid aside comfort and convenience for the sake of those who needed to hear the gospel. They laid aside comfort and convenience for the sake of the church. Are you willing to endure antagonism and ridicule and maybe some disfavor for the sake of getting the gospel to people who've never heard it? Maybe some embarrassment. How about for the spiritual health of people to have an awkward conversation with a brother or sister that you know is in sin and is wandering further and further from Christ and you haven't seen him here on a Sunday morning for some time? Are you willing to lay aside the comfort and convenience of not getting into that by plunging in and seeing if you can't strengthen the soul of a brother or a sister? See if you can't encourage them. Warn them of what it means to follow Christ in the world? Are you convinced that eternal life is at stake for people all around us, and that apart from hearing the gospel, people cannot be saved? Is the gospel good news to your own heart, so much so that you're captured by the glory of God who loves us so much that he sent his son into the world to take our place for our sins, die on the cross and rise from the dead, to reconcile us to himself. Is that gospel such good news to your soul that you've become a new creation in Christ and that in the end, God is gonna do something brand new. He's gonna remake it all. And for those who've gone before us who know Christ, we're gonna be reunited with them. Man, God is gonna do amazing things. He's gonna set the world straight. If that's good news to your heart, how can we keep it to ourselves? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, I thank you for the privilege of speaking your word. I thank you for the privilege of studying it in order to teach it. Thank you for what you teach me and how you convict my heart of my own life and my own posture, the way I live from one day to the next, from one week to the next. Father, I thank you for the message of Acts, the unleashing of the gospel into new places, into new peoples. And Father, I'm thankful most of all what we see in these two chapters the difficult, hard work that these two men engage in, but the credit that they bring to you. You're the one who does it. It's a work that you have done with them. You're opening hearts to believe the gospel. So, Father, today, uh, speak to us, convict us of our need to lay aside comfort and convenience to help people know Jesus to help brothers and sisters grow closer to Christ. Father, show us and encourage us today to persevere by your spirit if there's trouble, to persevere for the sake of the church for which Jesus gave his life. Convict our hearts, convince us today, Father, that apart from hearing the gospel, no one can be saved. And give us an urgency that the good news is good for us now and it's good for others and we can share it and you mean to use us in it. We thank you for your word today and we pray that we might act on it. You might help us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Brian is encouraged to in this. The only way these things are possible is through the spirit in our life. So connect these words of this song as you sing Let It Be Your Response. Let's stand. the Christ can we do this
1: what gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more
0: membership course and it begins today it's it's a one day thing four o'clock in the student building if you haven't signed up for it but you want to come and be part of it you certainly can just let us know at guest services on your way out anybody with a lanyard can get you in all right we'd love to see you and have you there and then there's a family meeting on the 23rd of February that's just about a month away and it's at four o'clock as well and uh I think we're gonna meet in the we're gonna meet in the fellowship hall we'll meet somewhere on this campus and uh, it'll be 4 o'clock on the 23rd of February, right? So thank you so much for being with us. And we've been closing with this benediction, and I'm going to read it as well, just as Cody has been doing it the last few weeks. May the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be cl- blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God bless you.